Hello. It's nice to be here in the flesh. Uh, some of you might have seen me on a screen last year from my son's nursery. That was fun, but not the best, right? It's, it's good to be in the flesh. Um, that's what the church is meant to be. And I love seeing your faces. I love um, being able to sing and hear your voices. There's something magical and wonderful about just the physical act of church. So I'm excited to be here. Um, I bring greetings from Southland Santa Ana, which is my home church just down, down the five, literally 10 minutes down the five. We meet at Olive Crest, uh, which is a Christian nonprofit in Santa Ana, and we've been meeting there since January. So we're just kind of a startup church in our first year, and it's been fun. Um, it's been weird planting a church in a pandemic. I will say that. That has its challenges, but um, God has been good so far. So I'm privileged and honored to be here um, as part of this series on uh, the family, uh, the family of God, I think it's called, or something like that. Um, I love the metaphor of the church as a family. There's so many parallels. There's so many things about it that we can relate to. Um, as I was thinking about um, speaking to that today, um, you know, one of the things about family is it's wonderful and glorious, but it's also painful, right? It, there's Whenever you're close to people in a family, there's baggage, there's pain, there's awkwardness, right? But it's, it's a good kind of awkwardness and pain, right? We grow in our family units, um, not in spite of the, the mess and in spite of the pain, but because of it. It's, it's how we grow. And that's kind of the premise of Uncomfortable, my book, is the church is like that in terms of it's a family, but families aren't perfect. Families are a challenge at times. Um, but we're only going to grow if we lean into the family and commit ourselves to it. The church um, as a form of family is, is something that our culture in, you know, this moment, um, this kind of post-Christian culture, pandemic culture, we're having to kind of reassess. Um, is the church something that's worth it, right? Uh, many of us, even if we were church-going Christians before the pandemic, because there was a prolonged period of physical distance from kind of our in-person in gatherings, I think a lot of us um, started asking ourselves that question. Like, is it worth it? Like, once we can gather again, like, should we? Like, so I think we're having to, we're in this season of needing to re-choose church. Um, and, and of course, there's other factors going on in our culture. Um, fewer people than ever are going to church. There was like a Gallup poll this year that showed that for the first time ever, in America, church attendance is, weekly church attendance is under 50%. So there's all these trends like going down um, and it's no longer a given that like church is a thing you should do, right? Even if you believe in Jesus, uh, in theory, you, you like Jesus, but you know, the church, eh, I don't know about that. Um, so even Christians who believe in Jesus are having to like re-choose church. So that's kind of a lot of what I write about a lot of what we do at the Gospel Coalition is trying to point people to the local church, trying to make the case for why it's essential in spite of the challenge, um, why it's something we should choose and commit to. Um, but as I said already, like there are challenges. There is baggage. Many of us who grew up in the church, um, you know, I grew up in the church. I have baggage and hurt from previous church experiences. It's inevitable that if you go to church for long enough, you will have friction, you will have pain, there will be baggage. And so we, we carry that baggage and it makes it even more difficult to keep choosing church. Um, there's also cultural dynamics with churches. Each individual church has its own culture, much like a family, right? 
every family has its own culture, and it can be hard if you're searching for a new church, for example, and you, your context is, I went to this church for much of my life, I'm used to that, but then you move or, or something, you have to find a new church. Um, it's hard because inevitably you're never going to find a perfect fit for the culture of the church you came from. Every church has its own culture. Um, you know, I was thinking about uh, if anyone's been married, raise your hand if you've been married, if you are married. Um, you can relate to this. When you marry into someone else's family, there's a, there's a period of adjustment to the culture of your spouse's family. Um, when my wife and I got married nine years ago and we spent our first, like, holidays together, it was kind of rough because, like, Kira, my wife's family, does Christmas in, like, a very, like, loud, boisterous way. She comes from a family of four kids. There's a lot of people, a lot of things going on on Christmas morning. They make everyone dress in, like, ugly PJs, which I had to do my first time. And it was just, like, for me, coming from a different culture of doing Christmas with my smaller, kind of more Midwestern, traditional family, it was an adjustment period, like, kind of learning this new culture of family. And vice versa for my wife. When she experienced Christmas in Kansas with my family, which is very, like, almost sedate, you know, we're, we're just kind of lounging around doing nothing for the first half of Christmas. And we open presents, like, late in the afternoon, like, no rush to do that. She just didn't like it. It wasn't what she was used to because she came from this culture and this way of doing things. And so that shows you how, with church, it's similar. Like, when you go to a new church, it's a different culture. You have to kind of adjust to it and commit to, I'm just going to stick it out, even though it's not necessarily my favorite thing. This played out for me with Southlands. So I've been, I've been at Southlands for um, almost 10 years now, but when we first started going, Kira and I started going when we were engaged, for both of us, it was a different sort of church culture than we were used to. Um, both of us came from like more Presbyterian, Baptist church backgrounds, not charismatic at all. And if anyone has been to Southlands, you know it's a little bit, it leans towards kind of charismatic expressions of worship. Everyone's raising their hands. It's a kind of unpredictable uh, service. Uh, and that just wasn't what we were used to. And so the first couple years, honestly, of going to church there, it felt awkward. It felt like, I don't know if I fit here. It's just not meeting me exactly as I like. All of my kind of check boxes of taste and preferences, including the style of music. I'm not a fan of like loud, you know, like I can't hear myself sing music, um, but that's what it is at Southlands. Like I literally haven't heard my voice in 10 years in worship. Um, and, you know, at first it was something I complained about and I was like bickering, you know, and it's like driving home from church complaining to Kira. But over time, I have learned to kind of love it. And I'm now, even though the first couple years I wasn't ever raising my hands, like now it's just something I want to do. Because you grow into a church culture when you commit to it. When you say, I'm going to commit and love it and give myself to this family, even though at first it doesn't feel like me, um, it, that's what happens and that's how God works. So I want to talk a little bit today about... Um, the countercultural nature of Christian community and why it's worth it. Why, even in spite of all these challenges that I've been talking about, why we should choose it. Um, because it's good to just remind ourselves of what the church is and what it is at its best and what we can aspire to. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And I'm going to kind of talk in terms of four marks of a healthy church family that I think are countercultural in our society today and which I think can prevent a 
present a beautiful argument for, for a church. Um, Christian community is, it's messy, right? It always has been. For 2,000 years, churches have been messy, but um, Christians have kept choosing church over the years, and we're grateful. We're here today because the saints in our past did not give up on the church. They persisted, they committed, even through many tumultuous eras in church history, even through many fragmentations. We are here today. Christians are gathering like this in auditoriums and churches throughout the world, in every part of the world, because of the faithful believers who have committed to the church in spite of the challenge. So I want to go way back in that story to kind of the first generation of churches and Christians to look at what, what, what did that look like? Uh, what, what is there to learn from and emulate in terms of the earliest churches that gathered? So we're going to look at uh, the Thessalonian church today. Um, first Thessalonians, if you have your Bibles, you can pull that up. Um, a couple contextual things before we read this, this chapter. First Thessalonians is one of the earliest epistles that Paul wrote. It, it's dated around 51 A.D., um, so this is like, you know, just a few decades removed from Jesus and his ministry, his death. Um, and it's hard to even put yourself in that mindset. But just think about, like, what would that be like to be gathering as a church when, you know, people are still alive who knew him, who walked with him. So it's, a, it's hard to even put ourselves there. But this is a, a special time in church history because it's the first generation of churches gathering. And Paul, of course, is writing to different churches that are scattered throughout the Mediterranean world, and he's helping them walk through this initial awkward, messy phase of what it means to be a, a community of followers of this guy, Jesus, who recently lived and died in Palestine. Um, so the Thessalonians, though, um, some of the churches that Paul writes to, as you probably know, were really messy. Like, they were, they were going through some serious mess, and Paul's having to correct them. The Thessalonians are kind of like more of a healthy church. They're like a bit of a model community of what an early church looked like. And so Paul mostly has good affirming things to say to them. And he's kind of writing this, especially this first chapter, to praise what they're doing well. So what can we learn by looking at this model church? What can we learn about what Christian community looks like today, how we as a church family can manifest uh, health in, in our context? So turn to your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians 1. I think it might be on the screen as well, and I'll just read it. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, <clears throat> to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and the, the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. 
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So I want to draw four characteristics of the faithful Christian community, the kind of model Christian community from this this first Thessalonians chapter one. What does it look like to be a healthy church family? I think there's there's four marks that I want to talk about from this chapter. The first is service, a, a culture of service. I think we see this in verses two and three when Paul says, we give thanks to God for you, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, love. Have you heard those three words together before? Faith, hope, love. They should be familiar to you because that trio of words shows up a lot in Paul's epistles. Um, In his letter to the Colossians, for example, he says, I give thanks to you for the faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So there it is again, faith, hope, and love. And in 1 Corinthians, the most famous version is when he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So clearly there's something important about faith, hope, and love, right? But in, in 1 Thessalonians 1, in the, what we just read, it's actually the earliest mention in the New Testament of those three words together, faith, hope, and love. And most scholars think that Paul is actually just kind of using those three words um, because they're already familiar to Christians. So very early, apparently, in Christianity, faith, hope, and love were kind of a central, like, shorthand description for what faithful Christian life looked like. Faith, hope, and love are marks of a model church. But the way Paul uses them in 1 Thessalonians 1 is specifically kind of in the context of service. He says the work of faith, the labor of love. And most commentators believe that he's actually describing like actual like hands in the dirt manual labor when he says labor of love it's not metaphorical it's like laboring uh it's it's serving uh, motivated by love and and hope so one of the marks of a, a healthy church family i think is just a community characterized by this sort of service serving one another sacrificially selflessly an orientation towards service which is which is following after jesus himself right who the Bible says came not to be served, right, but to serve. Jesus didn't come as a consumer. He didn't come to just kick up his feet on a couch and, like, receive good content. Um, He came to sacrifice, to serve others, uh, and that's something that we as his followers are called to do as well. Um, One of the things that I write about a lot in my book, Uncomfortable, is just that a a Christian community really should be marked by sacrifice more than self-interest and service more than power. And that's countercultural, right? We live in a a society that is naturally, our fallen nature is drawn towards self-interest, drawn towards wanting power and prestige, and Christianity is, is going against that in radical ways, calling us to sacrifice and to serve. The ethos of consumerism in our culture is so pervasive. Um, So much of just how we, the air we breathe in a consumer culture is all about self-interest, right? 
even our smartphones, it's called the iPhone, right? It's about you. It's about everything is about you. YouTube, right? Like Facebook, like everything is about me, me, me. That's just the world we live in. Consumerism is radically self-oriented. And because it's, it's infiltrated so much of our lives to such a great degree, I think a lot of us honestly approach church through that lens because it's the only lens we know. So we might go to church thinking, like we think of everything on our, on our phone, on Amazon. It's like, what do I want? How can I get it as conveniently as possible for me? How can it serve me and my particular needs, right? And so unfortunately, I think a lot of people do apply that lens to church. Even the fact that we use the phrase church shopping, I just think that's so weird that we don't like, it, we don't flag something. That's, that's kind of weird, like, church shopping, like we're shopping for a church like we shop for a pair of new blue jeans, like it's just weird. But we use that term, right, because it speaks to how ingrained the consumer mindset is in everything. And I think the pandemic sadly maybe amplified consumer Christianity because by necessity, church really did become just like a product you receive for an extended period of time. Um, you know, just something you do on the couch with your device, just like you do, you know, watching Squid Game or something on Netflix. Like, uh, it's just another, th- another piece of content coming. Um, so we're up against this, like, really pervasive attitude of, of thinking about church mostly in terms of what I get from it, what I get out of it, right? Um, there's a lot of problems with that. One of them is it doesn't spell... Um, longevity in a church commitment if you're mostly thinking like what am I getting out of it with a church in inevitably that will like change right you might get something out of a church now in this season it might be kind of meeting you where you at where you're at in like a sweet spot of your needs but those change and eventually there's going to be something the church says or does that doesn't quite fit what you want and you're going to like be a little bit disenchanted with the church and you'll be like, oh, the grass is greener over there in that church, so I'm going to switch to that church. But then the cycle just repeats over and over again. No church is ever going to permanently give you kind of what you think you want. So that approach to church, the consumer approach to church is just by nature uh, ephemeral, right? It's not going to be long-lasting. Um, the better posture towards church, and I think the one that the Thessalonians model is a posture of service, a posture of sacrifice. Um, For them, the church is clearly not about um, kind of actualizing their self. It's not about their best life now, right? Um, The Thessalonians, as you might know, were actually, they were dying (laughs) because of their faith. So for them, the church, going to church was not about your best life now. Like, it literally could be your life will end soon by going to church. So, they model this kind of sacrificial service orientation of what the church is about. So getting practical, like what does that look like for us? Like how can we model sacrifice and service as a church? You know, first of all, just practical ways of serving in your local church. Um, Sunday mornings, I'm sure uh, your pastors are, would be happy for me to give, give a promotion for that. Like Sign up for a serve team. There's always needs in churches, um, and that's a wonderful way to kind of break out of consumer Christianity, to come to church knowing there's some way that I can serve rather than just take. Um, And one thing that I say is 
Um, even with serving in a church, sometimes we can do that in consumeristic ways. We can be like, I'm, I do want to serve in a church, but I'm going to wait until the perfect fit for me shows up. Like when, whenever there's like an opportunity to serve in like my niche area, like I really want to serve like teaching in a kid's ministry, or I really want to serve on the worship team because I'm so good musically. So I'm going to hold out until an opportunity opens to serve there. That's just another way you're a consumer towards church. Like, don't focus on the niche in serving. Focus on the need. What is the need in your church? Because every church has pressing needs. And if all of us just were like, okay, I'm going to serve wherever there's a need. I don't care if it's the perfect fit for me. I don't care if it's outside of my comfort zone. If the church needs extra hands setting up and tearing down, if they need extra hands in kids' ministry, like, I will serve if there's a need. So serve where there's a need, not a niche. Beyond just kind of practical serve teams at church, like just a culture of service means everything from, you know, meal trains for the people in your church who uh, need a little bit of help. Um, texts to people who you, you know need prayer. Checking in with people. It can be as simple as that, but just this selfless, this selfless posture of putting others' interests in the forefront that's a beautiful mark of a healthy church family. And, you know, just this could become a long segue, but I think in the pandemic, it has really exposed, sadly, how much a lot of American Christians don't have that, right? Uh, we, we aren't willing to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of others, um, whether it's like masks. Like some Christians are like, I'm, I'm not going to wear a mask because I don't want to, because it's my opinion, it's my body, like, that's so unchristian as an approach. Like, we are called to inconvenience ourselves, lay down our freedom, lay down our rights for the sake of others. So it doesn't just apply in the pandemic. It applies to everything. Think about, like, worship styles. You know, you might go to a church and hate the current worship style. And you might go, you might sing, like, during the singing part, you're, like, arms folded. I'm not singing because I'm protesting. I don't like this style of music. That's like putting your interests first. But uh, the other way, the better way would be to say, okay, clearly like the majority of people here actually like this style. It may not be my cup of tea, but out of love for them and as a way to kind of die to myself and sacrifice my interests for the good of others, I'm just going to sing with a smile on my face and, and learn to love it, even though it's initially, you know, not my favorite thing. So just think about like what if Christians were, were known in this world for being like that, for sacrificing their freedom for the sake of others rather than demanding their freedom at every opportunity. That's just the way of the world. That's the way of consumerism, putting me and my interests and my freedom foremost. That's not the Christian way. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been set apart because they have laid down their freedom and their rights and their interests and their, you know, proclivities for the sake of others. So this is what Paul is praising in the Thessalonian church, their culture of laboring for love out of, out of steadfast hope. And, and it's something that we need to model as well. So and in that, as I said, they're imitating Jesus, who was the best model of living that way. Speaking of imitating Jesus, that's the next kind of mark of a faithful church community that I want to talk about. Imitation. Verses 6 through 8 talk about this. 
Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we, not, we need not say anything. Paul's essentially saying, like, you guys have done so well imitating what was presented to you that now you're imitating it for the wider region around you and your reputation is so strong that we don't even have to, like, say anything. So he's praising the Thessalonians for being imitators, for modeling a Christianity that was modeled for them by Paul and Silas and Timothy, and then becoming a model for others, for new believers, for new converts throughout the Macedonian region. This is basic Christianity, right? This is how, this is how it works. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, lived his life, did his thing, and the disciples around him who were firsthand witnesses, who got to walk with him and see how he lived, they decided to pattern their own lives on what they saw. They modeled him. They imitated him. And then they pastored their own churches as they sort of formed the first generation of churches. They, they discipled them to do the same, to model the Jesus-like life that they were trying to imitate that they saw. That's, that's been like the whole story of Christianity for 2,000 years. It's been this unbroken chain of modeling from Jesus on down through every generation. Like It's a beautiful thing. Billions of Christians have carried the torch of Christ-likeness simply by faithfully modeling Christ to one another. That is what church is. That's why it's so important. We come to church to, to have dozens or hundreds of models in front of us of, of Jesus-like behavior. Um, as most of you know, you learn in life largely by imitation. Right? Imitation, seeing it modeled for you in the flesh is so much more powerful as a form of learning than like reading it in a book or like seeing a PowerPoint presentation. Like, um, that's why parenting is so important. That's why mentors and people in your life who are in your life are so important. That's what the church is. It's this community of imitating for one another uh, what it means to follow Jesus. And just to, just to kind of clarify, I'm not saying anything about salvation. We don't earn salvation by being the best imitator of Jesus. Um, some, you know, Catholics might think that that's what imitation is about. But actually imitating Christ, not about salvation, it's just about obedience. Man, it's about mission, right? Uh, we, we imitate Christ so that others can see what that looks like. And if, if enough Christians throughout the world are little Christs in terms of looking like Jesus, talking like him, acting like him, then there's going to be this spread because people are going to be like, wow, that's, that's compelling. All these people are acting like Jesus. That's how Christianity spread, spreads. So imitation, it's, it's also kind of a central concept for Paul. It shows up uh, in various places. First Corinthians 11 is, is a famous one when Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul's not saying be imitators of Paul, be a little Paul. No, he's saying be imitators of me because I'm imitating Christ. So imitate Christ through what you see in me. That's how discipleship works. That's, that's what it is, right? It's more mature believers who are a little further ahead in the faith journey modeling Christ-likeness for newer believers. And then those believers grow in their faith, grow in their Christ-likeness, and model it for other newer believers. So 
those of you who are younger in the faith, um, and I'm not saying younger in age, right? Younger in the faith. Seek out people who are older in the faith and learn from them. Like, surround yourself with those people so you can imitate them and grow and be, be teachable, right? Be humble and teachable as you surround yourself with people um, who are imitating Christ and who are modeling Christ for you. So this is where this idea is countercultural, though. Um, imitation as a value will inevitably lead to a certain degree of sameness, right? Because we're all imitating the same guy, right? Jesus. We're all trying to look more like this one person, Jesus Christ. And so if, if there's all these people trying to imitate him, the natural thing will be we will all kind of look similar. It's not like we lose our distinctive personalities, our distinctive cultures, ethnicities. We don't lose that. We're still different in those ways, but there will, there will naturally be a certain degree of sameness and conformity as we can all conform ourselves to Christ-likeness. And that's countercultural today because we do not live in a world that, that likes conformity, right? We live in a culture that likes individuality and expressing your authentic individual self um, and not having any, anyone say that you should be like this or you should change to be like this. We celebrate total uniqueness. We push back against conformity. This is a world of follow your heart, you know, live your truth. Uh, we hate conformity. But unfortunately, Christianity is a faith of conformity. It is. We are called to conform to the likeness of Christ. That is what Christianity is, to be imitators of him. And healthy churches are not embarrassed by this. They're not embarrassed that they might actually look quite similar to other Christian churches um, across the world and across time because we should all look fairly similar because we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to be more like Jesus. There's, there's this weird um, emphasis in contemporary Christianity of kind of novelty and wanting to reinvent the wheel and to present kind of a fresh expression of Christianity. And they, you know, literally they'll say like, we're not your grandmother's Christianity. And I'm like, mm, actually it's a healthy thing to, to have a, your Christianity look s similar to grandma's Christianity because if we're all trying to be like Jesus, and that's always been the goal for 2,000 years, there should be a healthy degree of continuity uh, across time. And so conformity to Christ, imitation, is another mark of healthy church family. But what exactly are the Christ-like qualities we should imitate? This leads to my, sec my third mark of a healthy church community, um, and that is this, suffering with joy. Verse 6 talks about this. Um, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That, that's an interesting pairing, right? Like affliction with joy. Suffering and joy don't seem like they should go together, right? That's a very countercultural, weird idea, like suffering and joy. But actually, that pairing is one of the central paradoxical distinctives of Christian life and always has been. Christians are people who suffer with joy. Um, Paul, being a disciple of Jesus, like for him, like part of the imitation thing was suffering. It was the cost of discipleship. It was fundamental to following Jesus, was taking up your cross and suffering for the gospel. And man, no one suffered as much as Paul you know, in the course of his life. He just constantly had moments of suffering. 
but he did it with joy, right? Read his prison letters. The dude suffered with joy and modeled it well for others. Um, Suffering was something that in the early church was just part of genuine discipleship. It's what people signed up for. They knew that that was part of the deal. But so was joy, right? Um, I, I sometimes wish I could go back in time and just be a fly on the wall in like an early church community, like a little house church in Rome, maybe one of these Thessalonian churches, just to see the joy on their faces. Like these are people that were being persecuted. They probably had many people in their church who had died because of their faith, um, but they were joyful. And we, we need models of that, right? We need to see that. And one of the most beautiful things in my church history is just being around people who have really hard lives, who have suffered immensely, but they always have a smile on their face. They always have this joy because, because of the hope of heaven, because of Christ in them, because of the Holy Spirit. Um, when Christians suffer for Christ, we count it all joy, you know? And the early church understood this. They understood that suffering was just part of following Jesus. So what does that look like for us, though? In the 21st century, we don't, we're not persecuted in the same way that the early church was. Um, what does it look like for American churches today to suffer with joy when we aren't, you know, dying for our faith? Well, even if we're not, like, dying, we're not being beheaded for our faith, like, um, there's still suffering, right? There's all, all, all of us have suffering in our lives in every church, um, and I'm sure in your church there are people with debilitating illness. There are people who are going through emotional suffering for whatever reason. There's profound loneliness in our culture today. Um, you know, loneliness, anxiety, depression, all of those things are like skyrocketing. So I am sure there's people in your own church who are struggling with that. There's so much brokenness. And so to model this in our church family is to not shy away from it, to not be afraid of kind of uh, acknowledging it, going there, going to the depths with people, sharing our struggles with one another, letting each other in to those burdens, and then carrying those burdens with one another. A healthy church community is one where tears are a regular fixture, you know? When you're in your small group and sharing your burdens with one another, you know, tears should be there because it's hard to do life. And yet doing it together and being um, vulnerable with one another and being able to pray for one another and serve one another in that hardship is such a, a fundamental part of Christianity. And it leads to joy, right? To, to suffer in community, um, but in a, in a place of laboring with love for one another, serving one another. Um, it, it, should, it should lead us to focus more on Christ and the cross and the resurrection, right? And remind us of our glorious uh, future. Even though we weep now, we will rejoice in the future. So weeping with those who weep is a mark of Christianity. But Paul also says rejoice with those who rejoice. So suffer, but be joyful, right? We don't just wallow in our suffering. We don't just kind of um, elevate our brokenness to some sort of... Um, uh, some sort of credibility, like street cred. I, I actually see that happen in weird ways today where it's kind of like, I'm broken, you're broken, and that's like the currency of how we relate to each other. Like, how are you broken? I'm broken in this way. But we never move beyond that. There's never a sense of like, uh, okay, well, we're broken. We're honest about that. That's a good thing. But how can we grow out of that? How can we move? How can we become whole 
because we have hope. We're people of hope. We have the Holy Spirit. So it can't end at suffering. It can't end at just kind of going around in circles and patting each other on the back for all the ways we're suffering and all the ways we're broken. We have to like move on together in the direction of hope and joy. And that leads me to the final mark of a model Christian community, and that is uh, change. Change is a mark of a healthy church family, transformation. And this, we see this in verse 9 when, when Paul says, you turned to God from idols. From idols, you turned to God to serve the living and true God. The Thessalonian church was basically composed of pagans who they were worshiping idols one day, right? And then they heard the gospel and they turned from the idols to Jesus, the living and true God. They started to change. And Paul says, you know, there was literally this, this turning, this radical transformation. And it's, I think that's part of what um, started to spread throughout Macedonia, this, this kind of, because that's dramatic, right? When you see people change that radically, um, word gets out. And that's part of what I think Paul is saying about the Thessalonian church's reputation was so extensive that he didn't even have to say anything about it. It preceded themselves. It's because they were pagans one day and they changed. So change is a radical thing. It's a hard thing, but it's an essential mark of a healthy church. The Christian life must be marked by change, right? If we're not a people compelled by the sanctifying process of transformed lives, of being shaped in the direction of Christ-likeness, to go back to that conforming ourselves to Christ's image, if that's not fundamentally what is compelling us and exciting us about church, that's a problem, right? And I've seen it happen where some churches aren't really compelled by that. They're more about like the status quo and just kind of coming to be a raw, broken community of people who are just still struggling with the same sins and they're not as motivated or compelled by the change and the transformation that is possible by the Holy Spirit's power within us and is, is what Jesus wants our lives to look like. Change is so fundamental to Christianity. I, I, um, a fun little story that illustrates why this is just, it should be the reputation of Christianity. My wife was, um, she was going to BevMo. I hope this doesn't like get me in trouble for mentioning BevMo. She was at BevMo buying some beverages for um, my book release party for Uncomfortable a couple years ago. And she was checking out (laughs) with all these drinks. And the checkout guy at BevMo was like, um, you know, why why are you getting all this stuff? And my wife was like, my husband wrote a book. And it's a, you know, it's a book release party for his book. And he was like, oh, what's the book about? So she explained, it's about the church. So he was probably like, oh, interesting. Like, you're getting all the getting all these drinks for a party about a book about the church and um, so he was like what's it called what's the title and she said it's called uncomfortable and this is interesting so his, his next thing that he said was huh that sounds like a book about growth and she said yeah that's exactly right because intuitively we know that growth is uncomfortable right growth is hard uh, we don't grow in life by just sitting on the couch. If we're an athlete, you're not going to become a better athlete by just like lounging around playing Xbox. Like you grow by pushing yourself into the uncomfortable things. And that's what church community is in terms of change and, and transformation. It's not easy. 
It's messy, it's challenging, it's uncomfortable, but it's worth it because we are here, we are the church because we want to grow, because we want to move out of our, our cycles of brokenness and move into Jesus-like patterns of life. Um, and again, this is countercultural in today's world because, because of this emphasis on like, you, you are fine as you are, like, and love yourself, be who you are, you know, born that way. Like, no one should ever tell you that there's anything about you that should change, right? That's the popular sentiment in our culture, um, that no one has the right to say that you should change. You know, and it's, it's also countercultural because of that thing I was describing about we've turned brokenness into this currency of authenticity um, so that it's almost like you don't trust the person who it lives a virtuous Christ-like life. Like that person, that person you won't listen to because the guy who's like clearly raw and broken somehow has more credibility. That's just a messed up thing, but it, it is where we are in our culture. We don't trust virtue. We don't trust people who have grown in the direction of Christ-likeness. And so there's this currency of brokenness. But again, Christian community is not about solidarity and brokenness. It's about solidarity in seeking Christ-likeness, growing in holiness together, um, being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. It's a beautiful thing to watch. As a pastor in a local church, like nothing gives me joy more than seeing lives progressively change. There's a guy in my small group um, who joined my small group like nine months ago, right when we started the church. He's not a Christian when we started. He was just a relative of someone else in the small group. And um, I have witnessed such change in his life. He's become a Christian, and I got to baptize him last week. Uh, and it's just amazing. Like, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps describing it because that is the sort of transformation and change that, that is the witness to the world that we need to be giving as the church. There's no witness to the world if every church is just a group of static people who never change, who are just kind of like doing their thing, sinning their sins, like broken in the same way as forever. There is a radical witness to the watching world if churches are a place where you can watch, you can see, wow, my cousin Jimmy has started going to this church and he's a new person. Like five years later, he has been transformed and he's not the person I knew. That is compelling. So growth and change is, is essential. And individualistic Christianity doesn't get you there, right? Individualistic Christianity is not conducive to growth because community is a place where people can actually call you out. They can be a mirror to you. They can actually say, actually, there's a blind spot in your life that we need to kind of work on. And they can, you can do that to them. It's this mutual kind of building up, um, growing together, iron sharpening iron, that is a beautiful gift of Christianity, right? Uh, we are here together because we're sinners, because we struggle, uh, because we know that we're tempted to go astray, prone to wander in all these ways. We need community to kind of keep us going on this path, and it's the same path for all of us, the path of Christ-likeness. Um, and we do this not in our own power. So um, just to reiterate, this is not about our our own self, kind of self-made salvation that we're earning because we, we've done it so well that we become like Christ. It's all a gift, right? It's all the gift of the gospel which enables change to happen. 
The gospel is what makes change possible in the context of Christian community by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is what makes this countercultural, transformational community possible. And for what purpose? For the purpose of mission, right? That's the so what of church. That's the why of church. It's for mission. The transformation that we experience, as I mentioned, is for the world to see and to be brought into, right? Um, so, so that just like the Thessalonian church, who were, were doing this so well, they were imitating Christ, so that the watching world would see that, and the word would get out, and the gospel would spread because of this healthy model of it in this little part of the world in Thessalonica. So that's why we're here. That's why you are here. That's why you are here in Buena Park. I am in my church in Santa Ana, so that our respective worlds of influence would, would see us, would see what we do, would see the health, would see the change, and would see that, oh, church isn't just a social club. It's not just a place where people come to, like, you know, just talk about the same politics that they already agree on and, like, you know, have some snacks and then go home and watch football. Like, it's something different. It's, it's a place of radical life transformation where you're all kind of putting the mission ahead of your consumer self-interest. Um, that is compelling, right? Um, that, and that's God's plan. His plan, his mission is the church, right? The church is God's plan A uh, for the gospel to be known throughout the world. Um, like the Thessalonians before us, we are here because God wants to do a work in us so that others will see the transformation happening here and want to be in on that gospel. So that's kind of mind-blowing, right? Like that we are part of that. We are part of that mission. What we do here matters. Don't diminish it. Don't take it for granted. If another pandemic happens and we are forced to do church digitally, like don't give up on it. Um, do not forsake gathering together. It's too important. So renew your commitment to the church. Choose it again today. Recognize that it's a privilege uh, that we're here um, and it's a privilege for me to be here with you. So thank you, and uh, let me just close this in prayer.